0: In the early 2000s, when I was a hardcore evangelical, it seemed that, at least in conservative Christian circles, one of the worst things anyone could be was a moral relativist. In a religious tradition where the Bible was the infallible, inerrant word of God, right was right and wrong was wrong. There were no caveats, no circumstances where different choices could be justified or at least understood, everything was absolute. And it seemed to make perfect sense at the time. I mean, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything, right? But over time, I started to notice a compromise here, a little bending the rules there. When the Bible says, thou shalt not kill, it just means the innocent fetuses we call babies. We don't mean convicts on death row. Being pro-life doesn't have anything to do with support for poor people. After all, you don't work, you don't eat. And yes, we can turn the other cheek, like Jesus said, and support life, yet blow up kids in Afghanistan and Iraq and other faraway lands. War is a necessary evil, and those foreigners are collateral damage. And yes, we should forgive as Christ forgives. But we've got to load up on every AR-15 and AK-47 on the planet in case those people we don't like rise up and get more of a say in our society. And yes, the Bible says to welcome the stranger, but God doesn't mean refugees from places we're bombing or migrants from across our southern border. The Bible says we're called to spread the word of God to the ends of the earth, the Great Commission, But don't let those people we're bringing the gospel to come here. God forbid they live in our neighborhoods and decrease our home values and bring crime. We are supposed to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who don't know him, but let's send our kids to Christian academies or better yet, homeschool them so they don't have to interact with the world at all. And let's go to Sunday morning church and Sunday night church and Wednesday night church and use the Christian business directory for all our needs so we as adults don't have to interact with the world either. Compromise after compromise after compromise from those who claim to hate moral relativism. The worst part wasn't simply discovering that evangelical Christians are moral relativists through and through. It was finding out that they believed in a hyper-individualist, pro-capitalist, dominionist reading of the Bible that expects perfection out of those outside the fold while placing no expectations on themselves. It's like being a fan of a hockey team, screaming at the TV and wanting our team to win, yelling that the refs suck for missing all those tripping and high-sticking penalties committed against our own team while getting mad that our favorite player just got sent to the penalty box for holding. No, my guy was just entangled with the other player. He wasn't grabbing him. That goal shouldn't count. It hit the outside of the crossbar, and dude was goaltending. But the goal my team scored should count. They weren't off sides. I remember feeling as if in evangelicalism, Christianity was a team and not a faith. Evangelicalism was revealed as little more than an institution to enable bigots, power-hungry grifters, and misogynists. Evangelicalism was and still is a bastion of moral relativism of the worst sort. Moral relativism, by the way, is not completely bad. Context is important and we aren't always in the position to make optimal choices. The older I've gotten, the less sense it has made to me to view life in black and white, but character and strength of core convictions should matter. And for evangelical Christianity, it does not. My approach to politics is similar. Context matters, but I do care about principles. Joe Biden is now the president of the United States. It hasn't yet been a hundred days since he was inaugurated and it will take a lot of time to undo the damage done by Donald Trump and his regime. And because of that, and because the Democrats hold such a slender majority in Congress, a lot of Democrats and progressives are loath to critique the actions of Biden and Democratic elected officials. But that grace and patience given to President Biden and the Democrats should never be at the cost of the vulnerable and the marginalized. I'm your host, Jay Poole, and this is PotStorer Podcast. Welcome to Pot Stirrer Podcast, where politics, religion, and history collide, and it's not always polite. We're on the heels of the $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill that was passed by Congress with zero GOP House votes and zero Senate GOP votes and signed into law by President Joe Biden on March 11th. The bill provides direct $1,400 per person stimulus checks to individuals and families making under a certain threshold, $300 per week in unemployment, $14 billion toward the COVID vaccination program, and more. And because unlike his predecessor, President Biden didn't insist on putting his name on the checks, the money started going out the day after he signed the bill. How's that for efficiency? Should it have included a full $2,000 in direct payments, or heck, Steady payments instead of a one-time check, as well as student loan forgiveness and a $15 minimum wage? Sure, of course. Should they have included means testing, or should they have catered to conservatives who weren't going to support the bill anyway? No, but we are moving in a positive direction. The increase in COVID vaccinations is also something to be happy about. A major issue is that Biden's administration had to start from scratch when it came to the vaccine rollout because Trump fumbled it like he fumbled pretty much everything that related to helping anyone other than himself. States do vary in their rollout, but when we look at the United States as a whole, vaccine distribution has ramped up a great deal and has outpaced expectations. We're talking about 100 doses given as of Friday, March 19th, and that's well ahead of the goal that was set publicly by the Biden administration. Given that the Trump regime had absolutely no plan for the vaccine rollout, the ramp up of the Biden administration has been quite impressive. And COVID numbers in this country are coming down. So it looks like all in all, what Biden is doing is working. So there are good things happening. I don't think it's quite time to celebrate too much. And there's so much more to do. But there's hope on the horizon. And I think Democrats should be more vocal about the efforts they've made to materially improve the lives of Americans. Do not allow Republicans who opposed a bill that even most Republican voters supported take credit for it now. But there's a lot more work to do. Let's talk about immigration. The Democratic Party unveiled a bill back in February that is meant to address immigration, entitled the U.S. Citizenship Act of 2021. This is an immigration bill that includes several provisions, including setting up a path to citizenship for undocumented immigrants currently in the United States, a fast track process for DREAMers, undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. by their families while still children, and a boost to the diversity visa program, commonly known as the Green Card Lottery. During the 2016 presidential election season, Donald Trump ran in part on an anti-immigration platform. He promised to keep refugees from coming in from countries like Syria. He demonized Mexicans as rapists. He said he would build a big, beautiful wall on the U.S.-Mexico border and Mexico would pay for it. And when he was president, he signed a series of executive orders. Taken together, the orders banned entry of Syrian refugees and barred visa applications from immigrants coming from Iran, Libya, Somalia, Yemen, as well as North Korea and political officials from Venezuela. This was later expanded in early 2020, prior to the U.S. COVID-19 lockdown, to include immigrants from Nigeria, Eritrea, Myanmar, and Kyrgyzstan, and blocked citizens of Sudan and Tanzania from participating in the diversity visa program. The diversity visa program is essentially a lottery system that makes 55,000 immigrant visas available to immigrants that wouldn't qualify for them under typical circumstances, Typical circumstances would be through family members already in the U.S. or by employment. Those eligible for the lottery program would also come from countries that have had low immigration numbers over the past five years. And the purpose is to foster increased diversity in the United States. The visas won through the lottery system would lead to permanent residency or green card status. So for immigrants who receive these visas, It's a pretty big deal. Well, the restrictions Donald Trump put in place through these executive orders were collectively known as the Muslim travel ban. That label is mostly correct, but the eventual scope of these actions targeted not only Muslim countries, but socialist and communist countries the U.S. had ideological differences with and then eventually expanded to include a number of African countries as well. Really, the idea was to target Muslims, but also immigrants from a number of non-white countries based on nebulous security concerns that were not well supported by facts, but were very much in line with the racial and religious bigotry the Trump presidency became quite well known for. So fast forward to the Biden administration. There was initially hope for Joe Biden on this front as he signed Presidential Proclamation 10141 on day one of his presidency, reversing the executive orders that constituted the Muslim ban. Biden's proclamation started like this, quote, The United States was built on a foundation of religious freedom and tolerance, a principle enshrined in the United States Constitution. Nevertheless, the previous administration enacted a number of executive orders and presidential proclamations that prevented certain individuals from entering the United States, first from primarily Muslim countries and later from largely African countries. Those actions are a stain on our national conscience and are inconsistent with our long history of welcoming people of all faiths and no faith at all. Beyond contravening our values, these executive orders and proclamations have undermined our national security. They have jeopardized our global network of alliances and partnerships and are a moral blight that has dulled the power of our example the world over. And they have separated loved ones, inflicting pain that will ripple for years to come. They are just plain wrong. Make no mistake. Where there are threats to our nation, we will address them. Where there are opportunities to strengthen information sharing with partners, we will pursue them. And when visa applicants request entry to the United States, we will apply a rigorous, individualized vetting system. But we will not turn our backs on our values with discriminatory bans on entry into the United States. End quote. All that sounds wonderful. It truly does. But here's the real question Did President Biden seek to make whole those who were adversely affected by the Muslim ban? The answer here is no, not really. After Biden's revocation of the Muslim ban, the diversity visa program went under a 45 day review, the results of which were released March 8th. Going forward, applicants that are part of groups Excluded by the diversity visa program will be considered without regard to the previous policy. In addition, those who have received notice of final denial of their application after January 20, 2020, can have their applications reconsidered without needing to reapply. But those whose applications received a final denial during the time Trump's restrictions were in effect during fiscal years 2017 to 2020, and had their applications denied prior to January twentieth, 2020, due to those restrictions, will not be reconsidered based on their applications that year. That group will be required to reapply for consideration, which is a very difficult and lengthy process. The American Civil Liberties Union spoke out against this aspect of the administration's decision. ACLU Counsel Manara Waheed said, quote, this decision threatens to forever prevent thousands of black and brown immigrants who meet all of the legal requirements to immigrate to the United States from doing so, perpetuating the effects of the discriminatory ban. Although Biden made the Muslim ban recession a day one priority, that alone is not enough. Today, he cemented Trump's legacy of harm, end quote. Obviously, Biden's policy is better than Trump's policy, but I truly believe more should have been done to take into consideration the immense amount of time, money, and effort of people who were excluded from a process they should have been able to participate in for no other reason than racial and religious bigotry. If there were statutory barriers to doing so, as the review appeared to indicate, the administration should have articulated those specific barriers and done what was necessary in order to make that group that got denied before the cutoff whole, it's the right thing to do. And what you'll find is that when it comes to immigration-related issues, and probably a lot of issues in general when it comes to the Biden administration, this is a pattern. There's some willingness on the part of the Biden administration to improve policies, but not a lot of effort to go beyond the barriers and the roadblocks erected by the Trump regime, whether they're statutory or in the form of individuals and agencies such as Trump-era judges and U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement, or ICE. Biden administration policies are better than the last guy, but we shouldn't use Trump as a bar to determine how Biden is doing on this or how he's doing on really any issue. But Jay! Joe Biden just got started! He hasn't been president for even 100 days yet! Why can't you just be patient? I'm not a fan of the idea of being patient when the fate and the future of marginalized people are at stake. Immigrants and people of color and people who are not Christian and people who are LGBTQ plus should not be treated as collateral damage for a man who has been in politics forever learning how to ride the bike that is the President of the United States. Look, I know it takes time to shape policy, especially when Biden's predecessor did his best to destroy every aspect of the federal government. Donald Trump appointed people whose agendas ran counter to the departments they were appointed to run. He sought to dismantle agencies brick by brick, while building up the police state and moving it more and more out of reach of the American people. So I get that Biden has a tough job, but at the same time, I also know that Joe Biden is aggressively centrist. He seems to be realizing that he can't expect Republican support for any of his proposals, even if they include things that Republicans typically like. So I give him a little bit of credit. The challenge is that when it comes to a number of issues, he is only willing to go so far and that isn't quite far enough for the times we live in and what people need right now. I remember when I first read about the Zero tolerance family separation policy of the Trump regime. It was extremely difficult to read about what was happening to these refugees from Central American countries, such as Guatemala. Honduras and El Salvador, who are seeking asylum in the United States, as is their right under international law. Children being separated from their parents, babies and children being placed in caged warehouses and camps, subject to abuse by Border Patrol agents, with no substantive legal or practical resource provided them. I have never been in their position, so I don't understand how that feels. And while I have friends who are first-generation immigrants, none that I can think of offhand came over as refugees. So it wasn't a matter of being personally or peripherally affected, but reading more into the issue and thinking of the trauma and despair that comes with having no out from a traumatic situation, no recourse, no one to listen to you or help you, was, to be honest, somewhat triggering. This was the issue that led me to participate in protests for the first time since I was in college. We know what the Trump regime did. It separated children from parents, allowed them to be caged in warehouses and placed in tent cities, run by Border Patrol agents who were not vetted for red flags, sent young children off to private adoption agencies, generally faith-based agencies, to be adopted out to American families while their parents were deported. And here, I need to give a quick content warning for child abuse and sex abuse. If you prefer to avoid this content, please skip 45 seconds. The Trump regime left children unwashed and did not provide them a proper standard of care. They failed to give babies the socialization and stability that they needed, handing them off to older kids who were also similarly caged. They did not properly investigate accusations from young women and girls that border patrol agents either sexually assaulted them or looked the other way as they were molested by others in the camps. Allegedly, the regime forced women in the camps to undergo hysterectomies. And they allowed refugees stuck in Mexico due to Trump's Remain in Mexico scheme To be physically and sexually assaulted. It was bad. It was very bad. And it all happened here. Migration into the United States from the southern border is nothing new. Besides the fact that the border has shifted over time due to wars and conquests, there have been several waves of immigration that have come from Mexico as well as from Central and South American countries by way of the U.S. border with Mexico. Some immigrants from these countries have navigated the immigration policies of the U.S. that have been at times restrictive to become legal immigrants or immigrants with papers. But due to those immigration policies, as well as the effects of U.S. foreign policy in that part of the world, particularly during and after the Cold War, some of the immigration through the U.S.-Mexico border has consisted of undocumented immigrants who are seeking a better life for their families and a brighter economic future. And still others are seeking asylum or safe harbor in the United States as refugees escaping dangerous conditions in their countries of origin. The United States government has often grappled with establishing consistent immigration policy, even before Trump, and have pretty much failed at that. It doesn't help that conversations surrounding immigration Especially from non European countries, is all too often tainted by bigoted and xenophobic rhetoric. Of course, President Biden and his administration's officials have said that they want to be more compassionate than the Trump regime, and this has garnered Biden a lot of goodwill and cautious optimism from pro immigrant groups and activists. But let's talk about what he's done with that. When it comes to dealing with migrants generally, the Biden administration is attempting to ramp up the processing of asylum seekers at border crossings who have been waiting under Trump's Remain in Mexico policy, starting with 25 refugees a day processed, with the goal of eventually getting through 300 refugees per day, though a deadline for getting to that eventual goal has not yet been set publicly. Once processed, refugees are released into the United States but are monitored typically by a social worker in accordance with the Alternatives to Detention program, pending their immigration court date, where it is decided if they will be granted asylum or if they are to be deported. Biden announced that the U.S. would stop enrolling asylum seekers in the Remain in Mexico program, but has chosen for now not to end it entirely. On one hand, under Trump, The Remain in Mexico program essentially slowed the processing of refugees at ports of entry to almost nothing. And then the COVID-19 pandemic made that worse. So it's a positive step that processing is occurring faster and that the claims of migrants who left the border because of the long wait can still have their cases reviewed and they may be allowed to enter the U.S. after all. At the same time, It's troubling that Biden is not ending the Remain in Mexico program entirely, given the dangers refugees continue to be in while waiting at the border, both from violence and now from the pandemic. Not to mention that the pandemic has now been used as a reason to turn away the majority of refugees. This was the case during the Trump regime and unfortunately is still the case. Thing is, the main reason why the Remain in Mexico program exists is because Donald Trump resisted the responsibility the U.S. has to accept refugees in international law in regards to the handling of refugees. In this sense, it's as if Donald Trump has never left us. The Biden administration also issued new guidelines to ICE back in February to limit arrests to those who pose a danger to national security and public safety As well as a general 100 day pause on deportations. But ICE pushed back on this directive, and a lawsuit against the pause brought by the state of Texas led to a Trump judge in US District Court removing the pause for the time being. New directives from the Biden administration keep in place the limits, but loosen the approvals needed for deportation, making these limits almost meaningless. Now, despite this, deportations have decreased, but Biden could really do better and it starts with getting rid of ICE. We don't need agencies, especially law enforcement, going rogue only in service to their own power to the detriment of the marginalized. One way we can move toward that end is stripping ICE of its contracts with prisons and jails on a local, state, and federal level. As a matter of fact, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar is leading calls by two dozen House Democrats to phase out these contracts that have been made by ICE as well as by the U.S. Marshals with these corrections facilities, mirroring Biden's executive order back in January ordering the U.S. Department of Justice to phase out contracts made with private prisons. And then one other thing I want to discuss in this episode when it comes to immigration is what we're doing with the most vulnerable, the children. I've discussed in previous episodes that international law has provisions in regards to refugees seeking asylum. But let's also briefly discuss an earlier attempt by the U.S. government to address Central American migration, and in particular, how to handle unaccompanied minors, children who are crossing the border into the United States from elsewhere, without their families. I want to thank a friend of mine, Ryan Chan, for bringing this information to my attention. So back in 1997, the Flores Settlement Agreement was signed between the U.S. government and litigants that were part of an earlier lawsuit. This class action lawsuit, which eventually became Reno versus Flores, was filed in 1985 and involved unaccompanied minors who attempted to cross the U.S.-Mexico border. These children were detained by the Immigration and Naturalization Service, or INS, the precursor to a few agencies today, including ICE and the U.S. Border Patrol. At the time, the INS had a policy of detaining unaccompanied minors indefinitely, which could include being housed alongside adults in sex-integrated settings and incurring daily strip searches these unaccompanied minors were only allowed to be released into the care of their parents. This policy could pose a problem if the parents were also undocumented, which was often the case, or if the parents lived in the child's country of origin and the intent was for the child to meet up with other relatives who already lived in the states. The suit alleged that INS policy violated the Due Process Clause within the Fifth Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. The suit wound around through the courts for several years until the U.S. Supreme Court ruled 7-2 in favor of the U.S. government in 1993, and the case was then remanded back to the lower courts. Eventually, the case was settled in 1997 with the signing of the Flores Settlement Agreement. This agreement was a consent decree that set regulations and standards regarding the detention and release of unaccompanied minors. It required the following. Immigration officials detaining minors provide food and drinking water, medical assistance in the event of emergencies, toilets and sinks, adequate temperature control and ventilation, adequate supervision to protect minors from others, and separation of children from unrelated adults whenever possible. The Flores Settlement also stated that the U.S. government must do the following. Ensure the prompt release of children from immigrant detention. Place children for whom release is pending or for whom no release option is available in the least restrictive setting appropriate to the age and special needs of minors. And implement standards related to care and treatment of children in U.S. immigration detention. Flores was intended to be a temporary agreement, but as another set of guidelines or legislation hasn't superseded it, almost 25 years later, Flores is still the chief governing document as it relates to unaccompanied minors. That said, there have been a number of instances of the agreement being violated by the INS and later Border Patrol and ICE. Many of these instances where the agreement was violated, such as the holding of children who were not criminals in juvenile detention facilities, and indefinite holds despite the availability of responsible relatives who could care for them, happened before Donald Trump. It's just that Trump and his cronies were so brazen about it, not to mention their willingness to pump the violations up to 11. One of the reasons why children were kept indefinitely in cages in tent facilities by the Trump regime is because responsible adult sponsors and their entire households would be subject to background checks by the government, often under the pretense of protecting unaccompanied minors from human trafficking. While human trafficking is a threat, in this case is typically rare. But here's the kicker. Any undocumented immigrants found in these background checks were subject to deportation. This meant that sponsors were less willing to come forward. The Biden administration has now rescinded that policy. So Joe Biden is currently grappling with the mess that Donald Trump, as well as years of bad policy enforcement before him, Has created. The question is, what to do with unaccompanied minors? Biden has ended Trump's policy of expelling unaccompanied minors, meaning that more unaccompanied minors, specifically those who have tested negative for COVID 19, are being allowed into the United States. Because of this, there has been a scramble by the Department of Health and Human Services, as well as the Department of Homeland Security, to figure out what to do with them. Some of these children are being housed by nonprofits and in former care facilities converted to house incoming immigrants while waiting on responsible adult sponsors to claim them pending their immigration cases. But there are still hundreds of unaccompanied minors who are still being held by Border Patrol. These children are being housed in overcrowded tent facilities, some having to sleep on the floor and having to wait five days for a shower. Mind you, while these children have been tested for COVID-19, these are still unsafe conditions during a pandemic, and prior testing doesn't preclude them from contracting the virus later. Many of the children being held report they are being denied the ability to call their families to let them know where they are. There's a three-day limit established for Border Patrol to hold children before releasing them, but currently the turnaround averages 37 days. Reunification with responsible adult family members already in the U.S. has been slow, with trafficking concerns being used by the Department of Homeland Security as justification to delay placement with their families. While the reported conditions are not quite as inhumane as the Trump regime, That's really not saying much. And it's difficult to substantiate the severity of the conditions since the lawyers representing these children have not been allowed to visit the facilities to see for themselves. Yeah, that's a problem. What's also a problem is that due to the increase in unaccompanied minors, 10 facilities that were decried during the Trump regime for deplorable conditions and had been shut down are now being reopened by Biden. That includes a facility in Florida that sits on top of the Homestead Air Force Superfund site. This is a polluted site with toxic chemicals that can lead to immune disorders and childhood cancers. It sounds like a slightly kinder, gentler caging of migrant children, but caging nevertheless. These are not hardened criminals, these are children And they're not being detained for an actual crime they have already likely experienced trauma getting here and they're experiencing more trauma now and really no one deserves to live in crowded conditions during a pandemic and living on top of chemicals that can threaten their health long term it's still inhumane and it's still in violation of flores yes Trump left a dumpster fire in a lot of respects, but Joe Biden's centrism is playing a part here as well. Keep in mind that while Trump was indeed horrible, the policies in place before Trump, as it relates to unaccompanied minors, were problematic. And Biden is cut from the same cloth as many of those predecessors. On some level, he knew what it was well before January 20th, Many of us did. There are advocates, agencies, attorneys, and activists that can provide some direction and some alternatives to simply using the same foundation your predecessor left behind. More humane solutions are available if you're willing to tap into them. At some point, you can't keep blaming everything on Donald Trump. You're the captain now. Thank you so much for listening to Potstarter Podcast. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Prime, or on your favorite podcast app. Go to potstirpodcast.com slash download and you'll see the links. Subscribing gets you new episodes once they come out. So you don't have to wait. You don't have to try to figure out when they'll be released. And if you enjoy the podcast, please give it five stars and leave a review. I'm always on Twitter, so please follow me there at or Cast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.